In February 1977, in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia, Allied Chemical Corporation was fined $13.2 million for polluting the James River with the insecticide Kepone. Many of you probably remember that story, that, those headlines. Well, something interesting happened in that settlement. With the approval of Judge Robert R. Marriage, Jr., a portion of this fine, $8 million, was paid by Allied to fund the creation of a new organization, the Virginia Environmental Endowment. For 33 years, the endowment has honored its innovative creation by funding imaginative people working to improve the quality of the environment in the Commonwealth. Gerald P. McCarthy has served as executive director of VEE since its founding and is uniquely qualified to speak to us today about its influence. Before heading VEE, he served as chairman of the Commonwealth of Virginia's Council on the Environment for both Governors Holton, who I'm delighted is here in person, and Governor Godwin. He has sat on numerous government boards and commissions. He currently serves on the Commonwealth Transportation Board, Richmond Metropolitan Authority, and the VCU Rice Center for Environmental Life Sciences. He's received awards from a variety of organizations, including the National Geographic Society, the Nature Conservancy, and the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Jerry McCarthy is a veteran of the US Air Force and has taught at Duke University School of the Environment and at VCU. He holds a master's degree in nuclear engineering from the University of Washington in Seattle. And on a personal level, I must thank Jerry for the visionary way he imagined a relationship between the VEE and the VHS. And he will always hold a special place in my heart for being the first major funder to hand me a check after my appointment as VHS president, which I have to say was quite a thrill. So please join me in welcoming Jerry McCarthy, who will speak to us about the Virginia Environmental Endowment, leadership, leverage, and legacy. Good afternoon. Hi. It's nice to see you all here. Um, I am honored. Uh, thank you, Paul, for that lovely introduction. It really is an honor to be here to tell the story of Virginia Environmental Endowment. And um, I do want to acknowledge, though, first uh, some very important and special people who are here today and whose encouragement uh, continues to make this story such an enjoyable one for me. My wife, Lou, is here, sitting up front. Um, my very valuable right arm, Jean Wildboer, is sitting right next to her. And the extraordinary board of directors of Virginia Environmental Endowment are all here today as well. And thank you especially to former Governor Linwood Holton, um, who gave me uh, my first opportunity in Virginia, believe it or not, 40 years ago, when right out of the Air Force, he. Uh, appointed me to head his newly created Governor's Council on the Environment and uh, allowed me to pursue my life's goal of protecting the environment and especially in Virginia. 
So there are a lot of wonderful people here today that I could go on and on acknowledging from some of the ones I've seen here already in the audience, but I will, uh, I'll try to get into the substance of this right away. Uh, I'm delighted to see former delegate and Secretary of Natural Resources Taylor Murphy and his wife Helen here, our, our favorite Chesapeake Bay champion, and it's an honor, Taylor, that you would be here today as well. And perhaps, in a way, the most important people in the room are those to whom we have been able to give money and help and advice over these years because there is a bunch of them sitting in the audience here today. And finally, one additional thank you to the Virginia Historical Society, um, which is developing the Robert R. Marriage Environmental History Archive. We are really excited and honored to be able to make that happen. The history of Virginia Environmental Endowment covers a period of U.S. and Virginia history during which major advances in research, education, law, and public policy on the environment occurred as never before. And uh, it is a story filled with people whose own stories could supplement this lecture many, many times over because of the work they have done that has made such a difference in Virginia's environment. So, if you all pay attention now, once upon a time, back in the day, when we had to uh, swim through Kipone, elated waters, um, it's my privilege, really, to tell you this story about how we came to be, what we've been doing, and where we may be going uh, in the future. For those of you who like to measure success by the numbers, here they are. We started with $8 million 33 years ago. We've made grants for $27 million on projects with the matching funds we always require, worth about $67 million worth of work. And we still have, uh, as of the other day, $15.23 million in the bank, as it were, uh, managed very nicely by our investment committee, for which I am most grateful. Um, that's quite a little, but of course, numbers are not the whole story. Um, Paul's already mentioned our founding father, Judge Marriage. The endowment really did come about in a unique way. Uh, the judge did something unprecedented in federal court history. He turned a fine for pollution, in fact, the largest fine in U.S. history, into a creative way to benefit the citizens of Virginia. Um, the 13.24 million fine that was assessed, uh, he, he literally said to Allied Chemical and its lawyers that uh, this is as much as I can fine you uh, but it's a shame that it's not going to do Virginia any good, and could you perhaps come up with a plan that might do Virginians some good? Well, they thought about it for a while, and they came back with a proposal to put up $8 million to start what is known as the VEE. The judge accepted that idea, liked it very much, took the $8 million, and although he didn't have to, he reduced the fine by $8 million, uh, down to $5.25 million, uh, but Allied still wound up paying $13.24 million. Eight of it stayed here in Virginia, where it has done that $67 million worth of work. The other $5.24 million went to the Federal Treasury, where it was never heard from again. <laughs> in addition to the uniqueness of its creation, the endowment was ahead of its time in another way. 
Um, incredibly enough, in 1977, when the endowment was created, it was the only grant-making institution in the country devoting 100% of its grants to environmental quality as its mission. Other foundations, of course, spent some of their monies on the environment, but the endowment was the first to focus 100% on it, and that's an historical footnote, perhaps, for Virginia to take um, notice of. A few years later, we also helped start the Environmental Grant Makers Association, and later still, the Chesapeake Bay Donors Forum, and uh, perhaps in part because of all that activity, we further leveraged our work um, because when we started, little less than 2% of all grants made by foundations throughout the country uh, were for environmental purposes. Today, that number is around 8%, so that is an enormous improvement over the years. Uh, Judge Marriage was not only the endowment's founding father, he also took on himself the responsibility for appointing the board of directors. And he did a superb job of selecting people who were not experts on the environment, but rather people who had wide knowledge inventories, diverse backgrounds and experiences, and independent judgment. And all the um, board members we've had over the year fit those criteria very nicely. Um, I want to show you one of my favorite old slides. Uh, that is our initial board of directors. Um, from back in 1978, I think it was. Judge, uh, I'm sorry, Judge McKenzie is on the, on the left in the front row next to Bill Cummings, who was the U.S. Attorney at the time, the chairman of our board. Francis Lewis next to him. Back on the left, George Yow, who is a CEO of Dominion Bank here in Richmond. Sidney Lewis, we'll skip over the next guy. Um, <laughs> Admiral Ross Bullard had just retired from the U.S. Coast Guard, had been in charge of the, uh, um, the Port of Hampton Roads, and before that, the Port of New York. And finally, uh, a young man named Tom Wolfe, who is one of the most astute observers of American society over the last half century. Uh, so you can see the kinds of people that started the endowment. And uh, the current board, uh, that's them mixed in with uh, some other folks that we were visiting up in Clark County where we had a board meeting that day. They're all sitting down here in front. Um, Dr. Dixon Butler is our chairman, a Richmond native. Mrs. Robin Belisle from Charlottesville, Paul Elbling of Richmond. Landon Hilliard, who originally hails from Virginia Beach, now lives in Oyster Cove. Anna Lawson of Daleville, Nina Randolph of Alexandria, and Bob Smith of Washington, D.C. There have been about two dozen trustees of the endowment over the years, including such other wonderful folks as the late Al Smith, Patricia Kluge, Byron Yost, Jeannie Belisles, and the late Bob Freeman. So we have had some extraordinary leadership on the board of the endowment over these years. I thought it would be useful for you to understand how, from the get-go, a board decided to do what has set the pattern for us ever since. Uh, here you were handed this $8 million opportunity, um, and what are you going to do with it? Uh, because it wasn't obvious. I mean, you're going to do something for the benefit of Virginia's environment, or what exactly will that be? And the board has always taken the time to ask, what needs doing? Uh, I think that's the most important question they ever ask. And to think through how a really relatively small foundation, I mean, Eight million, even in those days, was not a big 
um, foundation. There are thousands more that are much larger. Um, so we got some help from the national group, the Council on Foundations, that taught us a little bit about how to organize a grant-making foundation. And then we held meetings, uh, listening sessions, if you will, throughout the summer and fall of 77, listening to all manner of folks from government and private groups, uh, although that you'll hear is a little different than it used to be. Uh, and all of that added up to giving the board a sense of what their initial priorities should be. And those were water quality and toxic substances. That's no surprise given the origin of the endowment. Um, law and public policy. And then mediation and alternative dispute resolution. Now let me explain that one for a moment because dispute resolution is something if we don't exactly take for granted today, we're certainly familiar with the concept. But in 1977, the, uh, the board realized that after all our listening sessions that everybody agreed that pollution was a bad thing and improving the quality of the environment was a good thing, but people really disagreed about who ought to pay for it, who ought to do it, who ought to be held accountable, uh, and so on and so forth, and even what should be done. This signaled an opportunity to, to the, our board, uh, and that was to pioneer a new approach which was to mediate rather than litigate complex multi-party environmental disputes. And to appreciate how much of an innovation that was in 1977, <coughs> pardon me, it might help to recall that the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970, the National Environmental Policy Act in 69, um, the Clean Water Act in 1972, the Toxic Substances Control Act in 1976, and a host of other uh, perhaps less well-known ones that state laws all over the country, um, which, oh, and the Natural Resources Defense Council was formed, the Environmental Defense Fund was formed, the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund was formed. The, the, the default position to settle disagreements was to sue people. So when we come along and offer up a fund, which we did, to say, we will pay for mediating these things. Nobody even took us up on the idea, and we finally established on our own initiative the Institute for Environmental Negotiation at the University of Virginia in 1980, um, founded by Dr. Rich Collins and run very ably today uh, by Dr. Frank Dukes. It was the first such environmental mediation institute to be established at a university, and it's now one of the premier institutions of its kind in the world. Another important early decision that the board made was to leverage VEE dollars so that they would go further and work harder. The board established right from the beginning a one-to-one -one matching grant ratio requirement that requires and encourages other support so that we can double the amount of money we have invested in any good thing. And over the years, I think that's turned out to be not just good for the endowment, but good for the people we try to help because the good housekeeping seal of approval attached to receiving a grant from VEE has been a great help to many grantees seeking additional funds for their projects. Over time, our priorities have evolved, usually building on the ones that have come before, the way a good story does, let's say. Um, and our active approach to this means that we identify needs and set priorities based on them. We tell people what our priorities are and then seek out and make grants to outstanding people who can do something about these priorities. We also insist on accountability 
requiring periodic narrative and financial reports of progress before paying out grant funds. That's a little unusual in the grant-making world, but we find it's a very effective way of seeing that what people say they're going to do and how they're going to pay for it actually happens. For the most part, actually, our priorities, our spending has actually matched our priorities very well, uh, but we're the first to acknowledge that we're not smart enough to know it all and that uh, we do make exceptions. In fact, one of the uh, first ways uh, we made an exception was we demonstrated our flexibility in one of the first grants we ever made. It was a challenge grant to the Nature Conservancy, the national office, uh, to Pat Noonan, uh, who was the president of the Nature Conservancy at the time, to establish a headquarters for the Conservancy on the eastern shore of Virginia, where they had a huge multi-million dollar investment in many of the barrier islands off the eastern shore, but they didn't have any way of keeping an eye on them, managing them, and uh, they didn't even have a presence on the eastern shore. So we helped them establish their very first community-based conservation program in the country, and it was right here in Virginia. Um, I have to tell you, it was such a good idea because of the leadership, leverage, and partnership possibilities, but it also required them to meet a $150,000 challenge grant. Um, they chose the late, great Jim Wheat um, of, of Richmond to lead their fundraising campaign, and it all had to come from Virginia. No outside funding was allowed. And Jim Wheat, as you might have expected, for those of you who remember him, uh, exceeded the goal and came up with $300,000, not $150,000. To put that in perspective, that would be about a million dollars in today's money. The rest of that story, of course, continues today. These islands and their adjacent marshes comprise one of the largest coastal wilderness areas remaining on the east coast of this country. They have been designated an international biosphere reserve, a national natural landmark, and uh, over the years we've invested much more than a million dollars in the Nature Conservancy's work all across Virginia, including recent research to determine the effects of rising sea levels, threats to the barrier islands and the eastern shore. So the creation of the Institute for Environmental Negotiation and the launch of the Nature Conservancy's Virginia Coast Reserve each illustrate two other aspects of our grant making. We are there at the beginning with first dollars for an idea, and we often stay for the very best ideas for some years to come. This is a statement of our mission, which we've lived with for a while now. It's very simple and straightforward, but the important thing about it is that in contrast to the vast majority of the 80,000 foundations out there in this country, we have always been engaged in public policy. We make grants for research, for education, and civic engagement to improve public policy on the environment in Virginia. One of the reasons we're so committed to this approach is because as citizens of the Commonwealth, we respect the state constitution, which is the relevant Article 11 is the conservation article. Did you know, for example, and perhaps in this room many of you do, but in 1971, Virginia was one of the first states to adopt a conservation clause in its constitution. It says in relevant part that it shall be the policy of the Commonwealth to protect its atmosphere, lands, and waters from pollution, impairment, or destruction for the general welfare and benefit of the people of the Commonwealth. Each official in Virginia 
whether state or local, when taking the oath of office, pledges to carry out Article 11. Not all of them know this, but I can tell you that Governor McDonnell has, on several occasions in public, made a point of referring to Article 11 as an important part of his job and noting particularly that it says shall. I find this very, very encouraging. Article 11 of Virginia's Constitution informs our mission and, in fact, inspires our grant making. So, what's happened as a result of our being around all these decades? I want to give you some examples of how we think the people we've given money to have made an impact on Virginia's environment. When the endowment began in 1977, the opportunities for public participation in environmental policy development and implementation were limited. In fact, I can recall when working for Governor Holton in 1970 and 71, we held what I still think were the first ever public hearings on any subject in Virginia. We got the whole Council on the Environment, the State Health Commissioner, the Attorney General, all these people on it out there at a five public hearings listening to what the people had to say. In Fairfax, we were so overwhelmed, we had to spend two nights up in Fairfax to, we didn't listen to 1,500 people, but we listened to a couple hundred. And anyway, listening to the public uh, still, after all that, was not a big thing in Virginia. It's hard to imagine now, especially for some of you I know in this audience, but at that time, there was no Chesapeake Bay Foundation presence in Virginia. There wasn't any Southern Environmental Law Center. There weren't any Friends of the River groups such as now exist on the Shenandoah, the Dan, the Rappahannock, and other places. The James River Association was a volunteer board of landowners along the lower James River. The Virginia Conservation Network had not been formed. There was no Chesapeake Bay program at all, nor was there a Virginia Natural Heritage program. The local land trust movement had not really taken hold in Virginia. There was little, if any, environmental education offered throughout the Commonwealth. All these programs, in one aspect or another, were launched with the help of VEE over the years. And even though our assets are much smaller than government's assets, the relatively small size of our grants functions in ways similar to a trim tab on a boat or a ship. The trim tab metaphor refers to a comprehensive strategy that is conceived and leveraged into the public policy arena in such a way that its effects can be maximized, thereby creating the most change with the least amount of resources. And we certainly have the least amount of resources and we try to employ them in the way that creates the most change, just as a trim tab at the bottom of a rudder on a ship exerts leverage over the rudder over the ship's direction. One way we set out to do that was to help assemble a group of conservation organizations in Virginia that would grow to be among the most talented and effective anywhere in the country. Here in Virginia, our grants to build a conservation community have multiplied our initial investments many, many times over and have enabled tens of thousands of Virginians to participate in shaping and implementing state and federal environmental laws and policies. For example, in 1979, when signs of problems with the Chesapeake Bay were being noticed, we invited the Annapolis-based Chesapeake Bay Foundation to open an office in Richmond, with money, of course. Uh, they did so in 1980. Later, when they saw how valuable that state office was, 
Um, here, CBF opened offices in Maryland and Pennsylvania, but Virginia was the first one which Ann Jennings so ably directs today, and I would still argue the best one. Many Virginians have served on the CBF board. A couple of them are here today. Uh, Jinks Holton has served on the board, Jim Rogers, Russell Scott, John Castine, Taylor Murphy. Um, we've been very blessed by the people in Virginia who've taken on the Chesapeake Bay Foundation as a, as a resource to help. Another group we helped establish is the Southern Environmental Law Center. Rick Middleton, who is sitting up here today, is a University of Virginia and Yale Law School graduate, established this nonprofit law firm in 1986. Its mission is to use the power of the law to protect the environment of Virginia and now also throughout the Southeast. Headquartered in Charlottesville, it also has a Richmond office headed by Trip Pollard, who is also here as well as offices in five other southern states. Working with all three branches of the government, SELC shapes and enforces the laws and policies that determine the quality of the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the landscapes and communities in which you live. We've invested a lot of money, well over a million dollars in SELC over the years, and uh, we think that's among our better investments as well. But one of my favorite stories about the power of leverage concerns the Elizabeth River Project, which is based in Portsmouth. Picture, if you will, four friends sitting around a kitchen table in Norfolk one night in 1991, enjoying beer and pizza and each other's company, having a good old time. And over the course of the evening, they reached a remarkable conclusion. They agreed that the Elizabeth River was the most polluted river on the East Coast and that they needed to do something to restore it. A few days later, one of them called me with a request to discuss this new opportunity for the endowment to make a difference. Now, I had seen at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science the photos of dead fish with cancerous lesions pulled out of the uh, Elizabeth River and knew really had, had a good sense of the challenge that these people were uh, undertaking. But they explained their determination to restore this great and historic river named for King James I's uh, daughter, Elizabeth. And um, they wanted to see if the endowment would help. And I said, well, how much is this going to cost us to do that? Thinking, this is a big project, a big idea. And with utter sincerity, they looked at me and said, we would like a grant of $1,375. <laughs> that small seed grant has grown a millionfold since that first meeting. Today, the Elizabeth River Project's annual budget exceeds $1 million, and they lead the Lower Chesapeake Bay and grassroots organization around Bay tributaries. Marjorie Mayfield Jackson, its wonderful, tireless, and steadfast leader, is here today in the audience, and I hope you get a chance to shake hands with her, too. Their most recent venture is another thing that we helped them start with grants to the University of Virginia School of Architecture, as well as to ERP, uh, to work together to design a new kind of learning environment. The first ever learning barge, which is a floating classroom, uh, it's already attracted not just students and teachers from all around Hampton Roads, but also visitors from Europe and the Far East to observe and learn. Here is a beautiful photograph of the learning barge. It is a solar-powered, 120-foot by 32-foot environmental laboratory. 
It was christened just over a year ago in September 14, 2009. And giving credit where credit is due, Dominion Virginia Power contributed over a quarter of a million dollars to help construct the learning barge. More than 1,300 students from 19 schools visit it in its first two months. It, has, it is booked solid throughout the academic year and has a waiting list of teachers and classrooms ready to pounce on any cancellation that might occur. There's also a program for families during the summer. VEE visited it too. We couldn't resist to actually see the results of this. And uh, it's, it's absolutely great. And there's Princess Elizabeth in character there uh, telling us about the Learning Barge and the kids who come to visit. And there are, I think, 14 environmental stations throughout the barge where kids can practice the science of the environment and learn something in the process. In 1983, we gave the Lower James River Association, as it was then known, uh, money to hire its first professional staff, a woman named Patty Jackson. Two board members, Paul Murphy, a vice president of Reynolds Metals Company, and John Curtis from Williamsburg, came to take me to lunch at La Petite France restaurant, where Paul Murphy was a regular luncheon customer. And um, I have to tell you, being pampered by Chef Paul Elbling and his charming wife, Marie Antoinette, is a fine way to create a positive fundraising environment. <laughs> In the many years since then, VEE has helped the James River Association with every advance along its organizational development. We have given at least $460,000 to JRA since 1983, and uh, of course many of their board members come from the Richmond area as well, um, along with its wonderful executive director, Bill Street, uh, have made the James River Association such a success today. I gotta give you a quick footnote though to that lunch at La Petite. While I had met Chef Paul and Marie before, my wife and I had been to dinner there several times over the years, um, I was soon delighted to learn a little after this that Judge Marriage had appointed Chef Paul to the Board of Virginia Environmental Endowment for his philanthropy, not for his cooking necessarily. And his cooking is terrific and you can only imagine how much better his philanthropy is. So, um, Strengthening the nonprofit community one group at a time, though, is not enough. We needed to do more. And this is a true story. Um, after the 1989, well, they're all true stories, but um, <laughs> this one you might find harder to believe than some of the others. Uh, after the 1989 General Assembly, four legislators, including Delegate Taylor Murphy and his Senate partner in environmental work, Joe Gartland, uh, came to see me. They were frustrated about how conservation organizations were not as effective as they could be in winning legislative battles over environmental legislation. They saw too much disagreement over too many issues, thus preventing the groups from presenting a united front to the legislature. They, one of them even used the metaphor of, you know, these groups would, you, they might as well be standing in a circle pulling out their pistols and firing, because that's the net effect that they had. Um, they asked if the endowment might convene key conservation leaders for a series of meetings to discuss better ways of working together and, if necessary, to create a new organization to coordinate their legislative strategy and priorities. We sponsored three such meetings during 1989, and the end result 
was the creation of what is now known as the Virginia Conservation Network. This network comprises more than 120 conservation groups in Virginia and helps them collaborate, communicate, and compel attention to their priority issues. Martha Wingfield of uh, um, Hanover County has most recently served as its president. Cabell Brand from Salem has been on the board. Carl Bren, Lynn Slaybaugh, and of course they have another terrific staff director in Nathan Lott. I want to talk about the land conservation movement for just a little bit, especially because my old friend George Freeman is here, and without George, I'm not sure how much of a land conservation movement we'd have in Virginia. Um, Virginia has had, since 1966, the only state-run land trust in the country. The Virginia Outdoors Foundation was created by former state senator Fitzgerald Bemis with great help from George Freeman, but 20 years ago, the Outdoors Foundation had few private partners beyond the Piedmont Environmental Council and the Nature Conservancy. We helped to change that. Uh, one of the first partners in land conservation that we helped get started was the Valley Conservation Council, which was started in 1990 by Faye Cooper and several of her neighbors in Stanton and Augusta County. Its service area covers uh, Botetourt County on the south to Frederick County in the north. We provided money to get them started and, and have invested almost a quarter of a million dollars since to help them with their work. Working with the Outdoors Foundation and the National Land Trust Alliance, we've also helped many other land trusts get started and trained and learn how to be an effective land trust uh, and helped create their, their umbrella group called Virginia's United Land Trust, which has about 30 local land trusts in its network today. Now, to turn the page a little further, one of the areas we've tried to emphasize is the role of science, using science to advance public policy on the environment. Our efforts to protect the Chesapeake Bay uh, illustrate this aspect of our work. When the endowment began, um, the Chesapeake Bay's restoration was not a priority for the state government. That began to change during Governor Robb's term when he established the Governor's Commission on Virginia's Future, which covered six major areas of government interest and influence, one of which was natural resources, and that was chaired by Jerry Bemis, who made the Chesapeake Bay a priority for that commission. Jerry wrote a compelling natural resources chapter for the commission's final report that if you could find it at the Library of Virginia, you really should read. It was so forward-looking and practical at the same time. Anyway, it laid out what Virginia needed to do to protect the Chesapeake Bay. And the endowments board soon thereafter adopted the commission's recommendations as our grant-making agenda for the next few years. Fortunately, beginning in 1986, we had a governor in Jerry Belisles who not only believed in saving the Bay, but made it one of his signature priorities as well, revamping the federal-state partnership that oversaw the Bay Cleanup Program and leading the program to adopt a comprehensive strategy beginning in 1987. 1987 agreement made for the first time joined science and public policy in pursuit of the Bay's restoration. One result of all of that effort was the Chesapeake Bay Preservation Act, which was sponsored by Delegate Taylor Murphy. 
enacting a law was critically important, enacting that law was critically important for making the connection between local land use decisions and scientifically based water quality standards. The Institute for Environmental Negotiation, which we had set up eight years earlier, uh, facilitated the discussions among about 20 different interest groups and helped forge the agreement that led to the Bay Act. Once again, Jim Wheat played a prominent role as the chairman of this policy dialogue group and uh, got the group to agree on a draft bill that after about 18 months of tough negotiations, Taylor was able to introduce and get through in one session of the General Assembly in 1988, a remarkable legislative achievement. One of the 1987 agreement's most important recommendations also call for protecting and managing the Bay's fisheries in more modern, science-based ways. More recently, the 2000 Bay Agreement called for a plan to be developed by 2005, five years ago, to manage the Bay's fisheries on a multi-species ecosystem-based basis. Former Governor Holton, one of our board members at the time and a longtime champion of conserving, and I might say consuming, the Bay's fisheries, convinced the board that this was an opportunity to help make the plan happen. Many Bay fisheries scientists thought the idea of a new plan and a new approach was a good one, but there was no consensus about how to do it. When I visited the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, I got a more optimistic view of the situation. They're among the best in the country at what they do, which is principally coastal and estuarine science. One of the researchers I met with in 2001 was a young postdoctoral fellow named Rob Latour. Like his 2000 vintage Bordeaux wine namesake, Dr. Latour showed great promise in 2001 and has developed very nicely since then. The bay fisheries are managed on a one species at a time basis for the most part. Um, and also, the, all too often, the principal criterion for establishing the catch limit each year is pretty much how much did you catch last year. Uh, the Bay Agreement called for a new way to do this, one based on integrating a variety of predator-prey relationships, the amounts and kinds of pollution, the various harvest levels of different species, the availability and quantity of quality of habitat, and the age of different species, and so on. In other words, a much more dynamic approach to managing the Bay's fisheries. We were very impressed with Dr. Latour's and Vim's willingness to develop this new way of managing the fisheries that in March of 2001, the board approved the largest grant it's ever made before or since a $639,000 grant to the Virginia Institute of Marine Science for Dr. Latour to develop a multi-species dynamic model in support of sustainable fisheries management in the Chesapeake Bay. Three years later, seeing great progress being made, we invested another $195,000 in this remarkable um, precedent-setting approach to changing the way fish are managed. Last April at our board meeting, Dr. Latour gave us an update on where we are today. And while much progress has been made and many federal dollars have been invested, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which oversees fisheries management on the eastern seaboard, uh, while thinking this is a great approach, uh, they are still struggling with exactly how to implement it. This story will definitely be continued in the years ahead. Um, 
The Chesapeake Bay is not the only area where scientific research grants have informed public policy in, in, in Virginia and our grant making. For example, at the University of Virginia, we are currently supporting research by Dr. Lisa Colosi to determine whether there might be a water quality problem with all the hundreds of modern pharmaceuticals that are being discharged into state waters today. This is a whole new class of pollutants that, for the most part, didn't exist 35 years ago. We're funding research at the College of William and Mary to examine the adequacy of stormwater pond retention, retention ponds, as well as another one evaluating the effectiveness of the Chesapeake Bay Preservation Act's 100-foot buffer requirement. We're also helping Skip Stiles and Wetlands Watch analyze and make clear the effects of higher sea levels on storm surges in Hampton Roads, a project that has now drawn the attention of the local planning district commission and several of the local governments and businesses and the U.S. Navy and the Corps of Engineers. He has really started a ball rolling down there. Um, in the mid-1980s, working with the Nature Conservancy, we were able to establish a project that eventually was assumed by the Commonwealth and renamed the Virginia Natural Heritage Program. This is a comprehensive effort to conserve Virginia's native plant and animal life and the ecosystems upon which they depend. It was started by Michael Lipford, who is also here today, and who is now the head of the Nature Conservancy of Virginia and it's one of the country's finest heritage programs. Uh, to give you an idea of what some of our investments in that one it has resulted in 30 species that are new to Virginia being discovered, 300 species newly discovered altogether, 60 natural area preserves covering 59,991 acres, and the protection of 527 exemplary natural community and rare species locations. That's quite a bit of leverage as well. A couple of years ago, we put the first dollars into a project called the Flora of Virginia Project, which will produce a massive volume and a website that the University of Virginia Press plans to publish in 2012. This new flora will document and illustrate all the native and naturalized plants that grow from the eastern shore to the mountains in the southwest. Here are a couple of examples that I saw recently, last June down in Isle of Wight County. This is a pale grass pink. Um, so why is a flora such a good idea? Why, why am I talking about this? Because it would be a useful tool to botanists and other scientists involved with understanding plant life and their habitat, and it will provide up-to-date knowledge for the Natural Heritage Program. This one is called a tread softly metal. It will also provide developers, if they choose to use the information, land planners, local decision makers, and such, with information to help them conserve Virginia's natural resources, and it will help teachers to meet the state standards of learning for environmental knowledge. But perhaps my favorite reason for why I think we needed to do this is one Virginia history buffs ought to appreciate. This new flora of Virginia will be the first one published since Thomas Jefferson roamed the woods of Virginia. Yes, the most recent one published, was published in 1762, and we agreed with many scientists that it was high time for a new one. <laughs> one aspect of our work is a little bit odd also for, uh, for a foundation, but we have found it useful um, as a way to affect public policy is our willingness to conduct public opinion surveys to help measure support for environmental improvement. 
We first tried this out in conjunction with the Nature Conservancy when they approached us in 1992 to fund a poll to see how much support there was in Virginia for a parks and recreation bond issue, which hadn't occurred in a long time. The polls show there was quite a lot of support, and in the election later that year in November, the parks bond won with 67% of the vote. Then in 1995, we commissioned a well-known Republican pollster to survey Virginia's attitudes about the environment. That poll's results were splashed on all the front pages of the major papers in Virginia, in part because it was the first time such a comprehensive public survey of Virginia's environmental attitudes had been published but also because the results showed such overwhelmingly strong support for environmental protection among every segment of Virginia's population. It was quite a contrast to some of the prevailing policy rhetoric of the time, 1995, and it turned out to have great national implications as well, because it turns out that was the last private job our pollster did for a while. He went to work for President Clinton as soon as he finished our press conference and um, was able to convince the president that the environment was a hot topic in Virginia, and if it was a hot topic in Virginia, then by God, it ought to be good on the campaign trail, and everywhere Clinton went for the next year and a half, he talked about the environment. It was great, and the New York Times published a story about the, the endowments poll, and Newsweek did as well, and so we like to think that that occasionally has some value. In fact, it may have had more value than some of the other things we have done. We continue to do that today with Quentin Kidd at Christopher Newport University in Newport News. And once again, our most recent poll put out this past Earth Day shows very strong support for clean energy, conservation, and environmental protection. All of this very strongly, clearly indicated in Virginia. So if there are any state officials in the audience, and I know of at least one, two, uh, I want to encourage you, the public believes in what you are trying to do. They are willing to help and back you if you will do what needs to be done. And remember, the governor says it shall be our policy to do it this way. So what do you need? Money to make it all happen. That's another pet project that we started several years ago when we talked to um, the Garden Club of Virginia's legislative forum back in 2002 after what were probably fairly routine remarks I suddenly had an insight to say, you know, if you really want to make a difference with that crowd up there in the General Assembly, you really ought to talk to them about money and put your two cents in and tell them that you want to get more money spent um, out of the general fund uh, for environmental conservation. If we could just get it up to 2% of the general fund, we'd really make a difference in investing in land conservation and adding capacity for water quality protection. So, in 2003, we did a study, uh, financed a study, to see how much the Commonwealth was, in fact, spending on natural resources. We found that there was a disconnect between the mandate of Article 11 and the money the state was investing in carrying it out. In fact, it was just 0.6% of the state's general fund budget was going to natural resources, which put Virginia in the dubious position of being 50th out of the 50 states in per capita investments in natural resources. We set out to try to fix that as well and helped establish a group called Virginia Forever by the next year. This, again, brings people together. It is a unique partnership that includes board representation from Dominion, Philip Morris USA, and Smithfield, 
alongside the Nature Conservancy, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, the James River Association, among others. Its sole mission is to convince the governor and the General Assembly to provide significant general fund support for natural resources conservation, particularly for land conservation and water quality improvements. To their great credit, Governor Warner and Secretary Murphy embraced this idea, held a natural resources summit, and by the end of their term had seen to the investment of hundreds of millions of new dollars in land and water programs. Governor Kane got on board as well. He established a goal of conserving 400,000 acres of land during his term and met it. And also, while he was at it, found another quarter of a billion dollars for new water quality improvements. So at its recent height, before the recession kicked in, we were up to about 1.35% of the general fund budget. Still not 2%, but now we're back down to about 0.6 again. Nonetheless, we put maybe $400,000 into this effort over a few years. We've seen hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in new state funding result from it. That has to be the most highly leveraged grant we've probably ever made, at least in terms of money. Um, and while Governor McDonald has pledged to match Governor Kane's 400,000-acre land conservation goal, the recession is not helping at the moment. But I'm confident with Virginia forever uh, in place and seriously committed to its work that you know, we can get back up there again. I meant to show that earlier, sorry. Two cents on the dollar is what we're shooting for. Mini grants, I have to say something about mini grants because while I've been talking about large grants, the fact is we've done a lot of smaller grants that, in fact, more than 275 mini grants in the last 20 years. These are grants of up to about $5,000 at a time uh, for school outdoor classrooms and local community water projects. We've gotten a lot of bang for our buck with these grants and uh, have stimu stimulated literally hundreds and hundreds of community-based environmental education programs from one end of the Commonwealth to the other. Further, in partnership with Dennis Tracy of Smithfield, Ann Wren of the Department of Environmental Quality, and Susie Gilley of the Department of Game and Inland Fisheries, we recently leveraged another 75,000 into 437,000 for more than 600 additional small but highly productive classroom grants. 56 of those 600 recently completed an online survey to say, uh, well, what happened? And those 56 reported that they had reached over 13,500 students. So you can imagine how many more students have been reached by 600. Looking ahead, as we go forward, this being a history lecture, we learn from our past. It gives us a frame of reference to embrace the future. It helps us understand past achievements and past mistakes occasionally. Uh, so we learn and we persist. It's, it's really actually how we got here today. Um, the Virginia Historical Society had asked us several times over the years to consider helping one or another of their history projects, but they were always pretty beyond what our priorities were. But Pam C. The very effective vice president for fundraising here is nothing if not persistent. And a couple of years ago, she called me once again to say, Jerry, VHS has an idea that might interest you all. And I said, what's that? And it was an environmental history project, and might we be interested? I think she was genuinely surprised when I said yes. And so we met with Paul Levengood and the rest of the staff later. And several months later, the board 
approved a significant grant to Virginia Historical Society to establish its Robert R. Marriage Jr. Environmental History Archives. This collection will include papers from former governors Holton and Belisles, among other things, about their environmental initiatives, many corporate papers documenting uh, private conservation efforts, such as those of Reynolds Metals Company, uh, materials from the endowment, and much more. We're very pleased to be a part of such a significant historical program, and we salute the Historical Society for starting this important new effort to document another aspect of Virginia's history. If you can help by donating papers that add more to the story of environmental conservation in Virginia, I am sure that Paul Levengood and his staff would be happy to talk to you about that and be very grateful. Dixon Butler, our current chair, is fond of describing the VEE as passionate advocates for the middle of the road. <laughs> as you have seen from the examples I've cited, uh, we have tried to be positive, specific, and results-oriented in using the funds entrusted to us. In doing so, we've helped Virginians to improve the quality of the environment by encouraging different interests to work together as a community with a shared interest in environmental conservation, by strengthening conservation organizations' ability to participate effectively in public policy development and decision-making, by increasing Virginians' ability to monitor water quality and restore health to all the state's rivers, by redefining how the ecologically and economically valuable Chesapeake Bay fisheries are to be managed, by helping to expand the land trust community, by helping to launch the Virginia Natural Heritage Project and the Flora of Virginia, by starting environmental education programs and outdoor classrooms all over the Commonwealth, by helping to secure additional hundreds of millions in, in new investments, and by reminding, by reminding those who temporarily occupy positions of public confidence that Virginians consistently support their efforts to improve the quality of Virginia's environment. As we go forward, we see plenty of opportunities to continue to make a difference. Governor Holton used to keep a sign on his desk on the third floor in the governor's office that said, today is opportunity day, do something. And I've taken that motto literally ever since. For example, land use is a fundamental determinant of environmental quality, and yet most decisions about land use are made at the local level of government by people, by the way, who also swear to uphold Article 11 of our Constitution. We will continue to work to make environmental conservation a local priority. One good reason to do so is because global climate changes are manifested locally. It may very well be a global worldwide problem, but its effects are manifested in very particular places in very different ways. We're already helping Wetlands Watch and the Nature Conservancy at look at various adaptation strategies, and we will continue to see whether, where, and how we might be useful in this area as well. After almost three decades of state and federal efforts to protect the Chesapeake Bay, this time the EPA seems to be serious about holding states and localities accountable for measurable, deadline-driven, uh, improvements in water quality. We will continue to play a constructive role in helping Virginia to meet its obligations both to the Constitution and to its Bay commitments. 
Dozens and dozens and dozens of Virginia businesses, winners of the Governor's Awards for Environmental Excellence over the last decade or so, have already demonstrated how they can increase their bottom line while decreasing or eliminating altogether their discharges. Farmers in the Valley of Virginia have learned recently that they can fence their cows out of streams to reduce pollution without sacrificing productive agricultural lands. We will continue to promote innovative approaches to preventing and reducing pollution. Virginia now has the best collection of nonprofit conservation organizations in the country. We salute these groups that do the important daily work of conservation in the nonprofit and educational arenas. Their successes are our successes. Their stories enrich this one. We will continue to help them make a real difference in the public policy arena to protect our state's natural resources from pollution, impairment, or destruction. There is a plan for environmental education in Virginia. Both Governors Gilmore and Warner approved it, and I'm sure Governor Kane did as well. We will also continue to invest in expanding scientific knowledge and environmental literacy for all Virginians. And finally, I'll save the last word for our first chairman, Bill Cummings. While I was preparing this lecture, I talked with Bill, and he told me this story, and I offer it to you as a defining moment in the endowment's history. It was the first important decision VEE ever made. Bill said to me, I am pleased that this opportunity has come to you where you can reflect back and take inventory on what the VEE has accomplished since 1977. As you may recall, once word got out to the Virginia Attorney General's office that Allied and Judge Marriage had formed the VEE and funded it, the Attorney General thought the money was theirs to pick up and apply to the Keepone cleanup. They called or sent someone over to my office, and I was already on the board, of course, and they sent someone over to my office, the U.S. Attorney's office, with their handout. Just think what Virginia and others would have lost if we had accepted their proposal, wrote them a check for $8 million, and shut down. They would have spent the money on a keep-on cleanup effort, and that would have been the end of it. He continued, looking back on that moment in time and comparing the one scenario to the works of the VEE and others that VEE has helped over the decades, it's just mind-boggling. So get on with it. Do another 30 more years of terrific work. And that's what the endowment will continue to do, finding opportunities to make a difference, helping who we need to help, doing what we need to do. Thank you so much. Wow, I didn't realize I'd gone on for quite that long. Um, but if anybody desperately wants to ask a question or two, I'd be glad to try to answer it. There are microphones so that we can actually hear you. Uh, got a question. Uh, we have a home down on the Chesapeake Bay, and I've been a oyster gardener for about 10 or 11 years and kind of gotten into all this. I keep reading that Maryland is ahead of us. Is that true? And what are we doing about it? In what respect? In just in general in protecting the Bay and coming up with stronger laws. And this, well, this new EPA thing is kind of like McDonald's says, we're going to make it more voluntary. Yeah. 
than they are. Well, Maryland has a long history of uh, kind of thumbing its nose at Virginia's efforts to clean up the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, they always say they're first and we're last, and that's not always true. And in fact, if it weren't for Jerry Blouse totally restructuring the whole thing back in 1986, uh, I'm not sure we'd come as far as we have. Um, nonetheless, um, of the plans submitted a couple of weeks ago to the EPA for the Bay restoration work, um, Maryland seems to have a slight edge over Virginia, but you know it's not over till it's over. The, the Virginia plan is very much a work in progress, and I take the governor and his secretary of natural resources at their words when they say it is a work in progress and that they will, in fact, uh, change the plan between now and I guess November 29th is that when it's supposed to be submitted. Um, so. I think it's important for anybody who's got something constructive to say to the state about how it can make the plan better to weigh in. There was a public hearing last night here in Richmond. There are some others scheduled around uh, the area in the next week or two or three. And of course, there's always a website uh, to file comments on. But please let them know what you think. And the more people, I mean, if more people would do what the polls suggest Virginians think, this would be such an easy matter, but um, nobody asked the kind of questions we ask. So um, we're confident in the results we're getting, but we're not always confident that they're translated into uh, public action by officials who sometimes seem a little too hesitant uh, to carry out these things. So I think you need to give them every possible encouragement and opportunity to do the right thing. Is there a, a place to go, a website or somewhere, to find a specific list, a, a complete list of all the funded uh, projects in certain areas of the state? From the endowment? Yes. Not a complete list. We have um, the more current grants are up on our website, www.vee.org. They usually cover the last year or two of grants, and we do publish an annual report every year. Um, so uh, when this... Um, archive is completed in the next year or thereabouts. Uh, you can always come back to the Virginia Historical Society and look it up there, but in the short run, um, the most recent grants are up on the website. Yes, sir, I, I understand you mentioned uh, as part of your presentation climate change. Uh -huh. uh, two questions, uh, if we did in fact reduce carbon dioxide, what effect would that have on the climate and weather in Virginia? And the second question is, how would we accomplish that reduction and at what cost? Well, not being a climate scientist, I can't give you a precise scientifically quotable answer, but my understanding of the science is that reducing carbon dioxide emissions will slow the rate of buildup in the atmosphere and thus reduce the rate of things getting even worse than they already are. Uh, secondly, the cost for doing that, I always say you need to look at both sides of the coin. There are costs for doing so and with a little American ingenuity, for example, clean energy sources and clean energy technologies um, can be very cost effective. 
but there are costs of not acting too. I mean, it's a lot easier for me to get a grip on how to deal with pollution in the Chesapeake Bay because you can measure costs very clearly there. You've put people out of work, you've destroyed the commercial fishery in a lot of ways and oysters and crabbing. They're slowly, slowly, slowly coming back, but I remember what they were 40 years ago and we're still only at a fraction of that and people who used to be in that business for generations are no longer in it. Um, when Kipone pollution occurred, the commercial fishery of the James River was shut down for 12 years. There is no free lunch, to quote Taylor Murphy's recent article in the paper. Uh, there just isn't. So to only look at what are the costs of reducing carbon dioxide emissions is very important, but it's not the whole story. You have to look at what are the opportunities for not producing them in the first place and can you make money doing that? And in the second place, the costs of not doing anything has its own costs associated with it. So it's not a simple answer, unfortunately. Um, but I can't resist the opportunity to mention um, a great lecture by the late um, British scientist and novelist C.P. Snow, who gave a lecture in the spring of 1959 at Cambridge that he called The Two Cultures. And then he later wrote a book uh, based on that lecture. And the two cultures being the sciences on the one side and the liberal arts um, on the other side and how they don't seem to communicate with each other. And people who um, may know a lot about Shakespeare uh, opining on scientific subjects makes almost as much sense as people who know a lot about thermonuclear physics opining on certain works of art and that they really need to learn more from each other. And I think part of what we're seeing and why we've always spent money on the role of science in public policy is to try to bridge that gap between the two cultures of science and the arts. The University of Virginia has a whole school devoted to arts and sciences, at least I think it still has them together. And, and that's the kind of approach that I hope we'll see much more of civilized, constructive discussion because I don't have all the answers and I doubt anyone in the room has all the answers. But to quote a movie line, it's complicated and yet it's not overwhelming. It can be done. Uh, and, and that's my answer is to dig in harder and figure out what all the costs are and what all the benefits are and then we'll make some real progress. Thank you all very much. Thank you.